Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got our very first ever mailbox. Mailbox. Yeah, it's. Okay, say it again. Mailbag. Yeah, exactly. It's our first ever mailbag podcast, which means you send in your questions. We've got some that are written out, so I'm going to read them off. Some are audio files. We will play those. But the idea is instead of having people text me 16 times because they're listening to a podcast, send them in as a question so we can all hear the question. And then we'll just talk about it uh, on the old podcast. So welcome to our first ever mailbag. First ever mailbag. We're going to try it out. And so here we go. Let's start. First question. Hi, Luke. My name is Nathan from Pennsylvania. Um, I've been to Texas before, but only Austin, so I'm not sure if that counts or not. Um, my question is one of application. I've uh, enjoyed your conversations with Richard Rohr, and I'm curious what piece of his teachings you've incorporated as part of your daily life and also in the life of your church. Thanks. I would say what has been incorporated most into my life, Nathan from Pennsylvania, who had the decency to explain how many times he's been to Texas as a way to legitimize his question. Thank you, sir, for doing that. You are legitimate. You've been here one time to Texas. You're in the club. Uh, I think the biggest difference that Roar has brought into my life, and he's had a, a big impact on on me, I would say, is the way that I understand the presence of God. I used to think of the presence of God being something you experience when you've done all the right things. You've had enough spiritual discipline. You've abstained from doing bad things because blessed are the pure for they shall see God. And pure people don't sin and pure people read their Bible and pure people listen to Christian music and pure people do all the right things. And so if I tried hard enough, then I would have these mystical or really it's like crazy experiences. And that was always the goal. I, I fasted when I was in college one time for three days, just, just drinking water. And coincidentally, my wife did, my now wife didn't know this. And she asked me to go to her sorority's party by sending me a large pizza with like a, something written out with pepperoni on the third and final day of a fast, which was pretty awesome. Uh, thank you for being a great temptation in my life there, Lindsay. But, uh, so, I mean, I ate the pizza the next morning, but I didn't that night. And I thought, okay, so I fasted for three days. Therefore, some crazy experience is going to happen and I'm going to experience God. And then it just didn't work. Like that kind of stuff just never happened that way because God is not a God that you manipulate by doing the right things. God's not going... Yeah, I created the world, and if you pray really hard for 30 minutes, then I've got to be your genie in a bottle. Like, if you rub me the right way, then I'm going to come out and do something for you. I, that's not how God works. And so now I see God as being present all around. And so the 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 prayer that we say at our church, instead of saying, God, would you show up here? But instead, the prayer is, God, help us to be aware of the you, of your presence, which is always been here. The, the the thing that changes is not God. God doesn't show up sometimes and disappear other times. God's always there. That is kind of core Christian doctrine that God is all around you, that God is omnipresent. I mean, that's that's basic understanding of who God is. And so what changes is not God, but it's me. And so I have to become aware of that. And so I start to see everything as the presence of God. And so everything becomes a gift and it, it changes your view on, on everything. Roar talks about 
prayer as this notion of practicing heaven, which I love that. Because in heaven, you are going to always be right there next to God. And prayer helps you practice that by opening you up to seeing that God is around you all the time right now. And so it's not that good things happen and therefore God showed up, but you know, God shows up in all situations. And I've got to learn to have the eyes to see that. And I think that's why a big metaphor in spirituality is about coming awake and, and waking up and realizing that the presence of God is always around you. Uh, Joan of Arc has the uh, in, in the play about Joan of Arc, there's this great line where someone asks, asks Joan of Arc, how come, you know, God always speaks to you. I don't seem to hear the voice of God. And her character says, the voice of God is always speaking. You just don't listen. You know, Lewis has a similar line in which he talks about, you know, the presence of God is always around you. The real task is to stay awake to it. And I think that's the kind of view of the presence of God that Roar has helped kind of ingrain in me as living out of this idea that, Everything contains the presence of God. It's not like God is like God is not just in the church building, but he's not in the grocery store. You know, God's not just when things go great and you get a promotion. But, you know, God is just as present in the valleys as he is in the mountaintops. That That is who God is. So uh, what has Roar done? He's really helped me with the presence of God. And so now let's go to another question. Hi, Luke. Big fan. My name is Brad from Helena, Montana. I got to say, did you see the recent BuzzFeed that was going around? Top 10 handsomest <laughs> podcasters in the oh. podcast game. You were square at number seven. And I got to ask you. Seven. Do you ever feel like some of your talent is wasted since all we can do is hear your voice and <laughs> not see your beautiful face? Uh. Have you ever thought about doing a monthly calendar or even a daily one? I don't know. Just an idea. One of your biggest fans. Love you. <laughs> Oh, that is so bad. Uh, Brad, thank you for calling in from Helena, Montana, which we all know is the home of the Helena Bighorns, the Tier 3 Junior A hockey team, which we love and adore. Uh, So thanks for taking your time out from uh, watching the old puck on the old uh, ice thing and uh, calling in listening to the show. Uh, But uh, no, I didn't know I made uh, the top 10. Number 7 is a a huge honor to be around such beautiful people as uh, Mark Marin and... um, uh, obviously, the Rob cast, I'm sure Rob's on there somewhere as well. So that's just a huge honor. And uh, to have listeners like you and to receive comments like this is uh, it's why I do what I do. So uh, thank you, Brad from Helena, Montana. And no, I haven't thought about a calendar, but um, I'll I'll keep that in mind. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> let me let me read a question which I've already screened, which is not going to be as bad as that one. Okay, we've got a question from a gentleman named Truman in Nashville, Nash Vegas. We love Nashville. I do at least. Uh, and uh, Truman lives there. This is a question. He says, I'm truly grateful for your podcast. It is a highlight of my week, and I'm a dedicated listener. I have to say, I found it curious and fascinating that there seems to be a perceivable thread of narcissism running down the middle of many of your guests, especially the ones under 50. Maybe it's because most of them are in self-promotion book tour mode, but I wonder if you have noticed the same thing and have any thoughts. They are all wonderfully brilliant. Perhaps that's part of the issue. Truman, interesting question. Um, is there narcissism in my guests? Well, obviously, uh, besides Jonathan Stormont, I, I honestly, 
have not noticed that. Um, yeah, I'm sure part of it is, you know, they're talking about their book. They're talking about their work. I'm asking them about themselves. And so that can uh, come across as narcissistic. Uh, speaking of narcissism, it's not like they have a podcast named after themselves or have a picture of themselves on it, which you can see on iTunes. But they're talking about themselves a lot. And I don't, I don't know if I've noticed that. But, you know, one of the things I do know is when you spend your life talking and articulating God, it kind of... It can do something to you. It's like when someone runs for president, what they're saying is they think that they are capable to be the most powerful person in the world, which is a, a, a pompous thing that is full of quite a bit of hubris to say, yeah, I think I can be the most powerful person in the world and it's going to be a good thing for everyone. Uh, in the same way, the job of articulating who God is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus or what it means to understand God, it is kind of a, uh, a little bit of an arrogant thing. I mean, it's kind of hard to really say that you you should be one to do that. And I, I know that um, with non-dualistic thinking, it's not good to say something's good or bad, but inherently everything has good and bad sides to it. And so I think part of one of the bad things about talking all the time and having a microphone right in front of your face is the idea that your voice deserves to be amplified beyond what it was created to do. Like a voice was created so that you could have a, a few people, maybe a couple dozen, listen to you talk. But when you have a microphone or you have a book, all of a sudden it's not tens, but it's hundreds or thousands of people can listen to you. And I'm sure that does affect you. I think anyone who dares to take up that responsibility has to constantly be self-aware of how the task that they are accomplishing and doing is forming them. So I, I wonder if that's part of it. I wonder if another half uh, of the subject is when you do have younger people, like you mentioned, uh, it seems like a first half of life thing that, that our friend Roar would talk about is first half of life, you're trying to understand yourself. You're trying to process your place in the world. And a lot of that comes from you gaining enough recognition and accolades and success so that you you feel like you've accomplished something. And uh, in some ways, that can be a narcissistic pursuit. And if you're living in this non-dualistic thinking, what you're doing isn't just good. It's 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 beautiful, but it's also tainted with the ugliness that comes from being a human. And, and humanity is this weird mixture of dust and divinity. Both pure motives and awful motives can be found in the very same uh, endeavor, the same venture that you're a part of. So uh, to answer your question directly, have I noticed it? No, but I am not naive enough to think that that couldn't be part of the equation for uh, a lot of us who do uh, do a lot of talking and do a lot of articulating about who God is. So Truman, thanks for the question. Let's go to the next one. Uh, we've got another audio. Let's play that. Hi, Mr. Luke Norsworthy. This is Elijah in Hawaii, and I just wanted to ask you, why do you always wear V-neck t-shirts in the pictures on the podcast? I mean, is it to show off those two chest hairs and take attention away from that One Direction haircut? Hmm. That's a that's a, a great question, uh, my listener from Hawaii. Uh, I guess this is the consequence of using Justin Bieber as clickbait. You you introduce yourself to this whole different audience of uh, believers, I believe is what they're called. Uh, no, I just uh, I wear those shirts because they're comfortable. That's why I wear them. And uh, I'm glad you and your other Justin Bieber friends have found your way to the podcast. And um, 
uh, thanks for thanks for listening. I uh, hope that answered your question. Let's go to the next one, which uh, <laughs> is a little better. Hey, Luke, this is Marla Finley, and I just wanted to thank you for your terrific podcast. They really stretch and grow me. This particular question is in regards to the common evangelical fear of losing control of a morality influence over state and fear that the church is dying. Hmm. Some seem to be taking on the responsibility of protecting the U.S. for the sake of Jesus. So I was just wondering, what do you think about how did the evangelical church get to this point? Thanks, Luke. Okay, first of all, that's a much better question than the one about my haircut, uh, and it's often also a little bit more challenging. Uh, first of all, let's talk, uh, before we get to morality, let's talk about uh, control. And so uh, the idea of losing influence because we're losing political power, uh, I think where that comes from is probably some really well-intentioned people who think that the best way they can... Uh, make a difference is by having power over people. And the belief is if you get enough people together that vote in our democracy, then you can force people to do what Jesus calls us to do. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a great idea, but I don't, uh, I don't think it really gets the the heart of Jesus. The way of Jesus seems to always be power under, not power over. It's, it's not forcing people. Uh, it's not, you know, getting the disciples to take up arms. Um, it it's to wash their feet. It seems like that's Jesus's, uh, you know, struggle with Peter. Like when Jesus in Mark eight makes the turn, and all of a sudden he goes from healing people and doing all this amazing stuff to saying, "No, the the Son of Man must suffer and die." And and Peter says, "Wait a minute, no, you can't do that." And so what what Mark does in his gospel, he has this this healing in which Jesus partially heals a person which is really weird because it's almost like why didn't jesus fully heal this guy is he just struggling is he running low in power did he not get a nap that day why couldn't he fully heal someone and then you have this interaction and then he comes back and he, and he heals him a second time and so you have this interaction with peter uh right before he's telling jesus he can't do this he's saying no you are the son of god after the transfiguration and so you have the first statement of someone really getting the identity of Jesus, Jesus then opens his eyes to see what a full clear picture is like, almost like this is a second touch that Peter gets to fully see who Jesus is. And once he sees him clearly, he's going, wait a minute, no, this can't be right. And Jesus says, not only do I have to suffer and die, not only am I going to take the low road, but you have to as well. And it seems like... Um, We've we've struggled with this from the very beginning. Like Peter wanted power. He wanted to sit in the right hand uh, on earth. I mean, that's what I think he was looking for. This was the temptation Jesus felt uh, experienced in the desert. Right after his baptism, he goes out in the desert. He's tempted. And one of the temptations is that he can have power and authority. And I think that has been a temptation that we have wrestled with ever since then. I mean, it's not just something that Jesus and Peter felt. It's It's we all do. And so fast forward to when I was a kid, I remember the the influence of the religious right, uh, what Frank Schaefer's dad, Francis, was instrumental in developing. 
uh, Frank Shivers on the podcast months ago, and he talked about this briefly, but when you, you create the religious right, they have such an influence in the church because it, I think a lot of really good people thought this would be the best way to go about uh, helping the way of God be established on earth. I mean, it's a very beautiful idea. And so it was so ingrained in the religious environment I grew up in when Clinton was elected office, elected into office, I really thought our church was going to be shut down. And that people are going to say, you can no longer say you're a Christian out loud because the belief that you had to be a Republican if you were a Christian was so strong. I didn't think if a Republican was not in the White House that you could even say anything about Jesus, that like Christianity would literally crumble. And so uh, the religious right has done a, a really great job of getting the church to vote in its favor. And um, it works out in a lot of ways fine for politics. You get a large uh, clunk, uh, chunk of people who are voting your direction. It helps out your party. Uh, but it's kind of like the old thing about mixing uh, ice cream and manure. Like it doesn't do anything for the manure. The manure is not any worse because of the ice cream, but the effect on the ice cream is far more negative. Uh, I, I think anytime the church starts adopting ways of doing power the way that the world does, the church loses her voice as being a spokeswoman calling out from the desert saying, no, this is, there is a better way. And uh, so I think it, it comes from a great desire, but I think ultimately it's not the way of Jesus to use power over people. Um, and so what happens is you start thinking things like, you know, we're losing our morality as a nation. And it's weird that we talk about that when it seems to be pinpointed uh, on recently the uh, the decision about from the Supreme Court about gay marriage, which if I'm correct and, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's probably less than like a million gay married marriages in America. I, I think the number is, is less than a million, or at least it was a few years ago. Uh, obviously, that might have changed by now, but if we've been paying attention – to the recent news, there were 37 million people who were on Ashley Madison, a website created just so people can have affairs. And you go, there are 37 million people having affairs or wanting to have affairs just through this one website. And that's not the conversation about losing morality in our country. And then you think, well, wait a minute. So we have gay marriage. Homosexuality is more prevalent now. Okay. And so some people don't think it's a sin. Some do. Um, but what about the fact that, like, 50 years ago, like, there are black people who could not drink water out of the same water fountain as white people. And if you go back even farther, there were literally people who were owned, owned by other human beings. Other human beings owned them. And there are some cases where slave owners were raping the women that they owned like it was no big deal and there was no punishment. You remember the the terrible lynchings that were happening, the, the Emmett Till, if you don't know that story, Google that one. Uh, these were things that were happening in our country, and often when we point back to saying that was a better moral time, we're going, wait a minute, there's more gay marriage, there's more cussing on TV, there's more expletives being used, but people don't own each other anymore. There's not slavery. Women have far more rights now than they used to. We are not burning people uh, like we did with the witch hunts. The Ku Klux Klan does not have the influence it used to have. There are all these things that were terrible moral atrocities that are not happening like they used to. And so to say that we are losing our morality, it seems like it's a very narrow definition of what morality is. Uh, it, like I said, I think it... It's a, it's a great motivator for politics. Uh, 
it seems like one of the greatest motivators is fear. And so anytime you package something with fear, you're going to probably get action. But the weird thing is in the Bible, uh, there, there are people who have counted these things up. And, and I think there's like some 365 accounts of God saying, do not fear. One for every day, right? Uh, and you go, okay, so if a big deal to God is saying, do not fear, but yet in our country, there are so many people who are using fear to motivate. You wonder, like, are these people working against the way of God? It seems like a big deal for God is for people not to fear, yet that is the very motivating factor that we often end up using when we're trying uh, to get people to do what we want, especially in politics. So, um Marla, to answer your question quickly, why does it happen? I think it's a misguided understanding of how to bring about the kingdom of heaven. I think there are people who are well-intentioned, some that are not well-intentioned, but let's assume many of them are. Uh, But I think ultimately it is people giving into the same temptation that Peter had and that the temptation that the devil gave Jesus in the wilderness, which Jesus obviously was able to overcome in ways that is a little bit harder than it is for us to overcome. Okay, um, let's go to the next question. Uh, We've got a message from a gentleman named Mark Penner in Oklahoma. Mark Penner from Oklahoma writes this. Could you maybe tell us a little more about yourself? Where'd you grow up? What school did you go to? Why did you decide to be a pastor, etc.? I'm sure there are quite a few of us who found your show by searching iTunes for podcasts with a certain author or speaker who happened to be a guest on your show for me. It was Peter Enns. I really like your show and listen regularly now, but I do not know hardly anything about you or your background. Thanks and keep up the great work. Your show has helped me dig deeper in my faith. Mark Penner, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mark, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, I'm glad that uh, a fellow friend of Pete Enns now listens to the show. Uh, about me, um, born in Philadelphia. I moved to Ohio when I was 12, Uh, started college my freshman year in Arkansas. Uh, I started college a little bit early, Uh, skipped my senior year of high school, went to college, which a lot of people think that's really impressive, but I try to tell people... Actually, I had this conversation. I was doing a wedding for a friend of mine who is the chief resident at uh, whatever the, the, the Harvard hospital is. I think it's boston mass general or whatever it is and so the the wedding is my friend uh chief resident at harvard's orthopedic surgery whatever his wife is also an orthopedic surgeon through harvard and all their friends are all these brilliant doctors and so we're out and they find out oh yeah i went to school when i was early like oh my goodness you're a genius i'm like guys i went to school called hardeen you actually are at harvard it's not really that impressive um and so, uh, you know, I did that, um, ended up going to ACU, my sophomore year of school in West Texas, where my dad is a psychology professor, did my undergrad, did my MDiv there, and um, it was there I started uh, becoming a preacher. I preached at a little country church for a couple of years, and uh, when people asked me about my call to ministry, I think it was that little country church. I went out there as a... 18-year-old junior in college, and I started preaching, and there was a sweet lady there named Audrey Brooks, who was 86 years at the time, I believe, and she came up to me after my first Sunday, and uh, Audrey basically like ran the church. As an 86-year-old, it was a church of 12 people, and she made sure the lights were on and paid the bills, and uh, her and her BFF, Mildred, um, 
you know, kept this thing going. And, and Audrey came up to me afterwards of the first service and said, Luke, um, and she said some really sweet thing to me. And it's something that's stuck with me. And if it wasn't for those people in this little town of 200 people outside of Abilene, Texas, uh, I don't think I go into ministry. And uh, so that's what kind of put me down the road that I went on. Um, I now live in Texas. I'm a pastor. And uh, I've started the podcast because I had uh, curiosity and interest. And people always say, Luke, did you start the podcast to get your voice out? And, you know, besides this podcast in which I'm just talking in my voice the whole time, uh, most of the podcasts are me asking questions me uh, trying to learn from people, people like Pete Enns. And so really what the the motivating factor for the podcast is not some desire I have to get my voice out as much as it is my curiosity. And the microphone is just a way to amplify not my voice, but my interest. And so uh, a lot of the people that you like, I like, and I'm interested in their work, and they've been a huge blessing to me. Pete Enns is someone I really enjoy a whole lot. And um that's why I do what I do. Um, I think that's enough about me. What do you think? I think that's enough. Um, let's go to this next one. Okay, uh, this is one from a gentleman in Rochester, New York named PETA. He says, you've interviewed a hundred or so fascinating Christians, minus Jonathan Stormont. Uh, he didn't write that. Um, You've interviewed a hundred or so fascinating Christians with great ideas for understanding God and his mission. Out of all these interviews, how have they impacted your ministry? And is there a specific practice slash ministry you've implemented at your church as a result of a podcast interview? Yeah, um, there's actually been a lot of influence uh, on what I do as a pastor from what I've learned of the podcast. Um, one of the things that Ian Cron talked about and I think this was on the podcast. If not, let's just pretend it was so I can answer the question. Uh, one of the things I heard Ian Cron talk about is the language we use when we go to the table uh, to celebrate Eucharist, celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, whatever you call it, mass. And he says, we often use a language of taking communion, which is the language that I often used uh, at the church I'm a part of. Let's go take communion at the tables right now. And that's kind of the, the rhetoric that would be used every Sunday. Go take communion. Go take communion. And he says the language of taking is the very thing that happened in the garden. Adam took the forbidden fruit. And this language of taking, it's not what we do at the table. And it's almost like taking is like this overhanded grabbing of something, like what, what happened in the garden. He says, instead, when you go to the table, the language you use is receive. We go to the table to receive communion. Uh, when I was up in Denver joining Nadia for a service, uh, they had a bunch of different people who were uh, administering uh, the Eucharist. And so I went down the line where Nadia was, and I put my hand out, and the host, the bread, was placed in my hand, and I received it in my open hands. I didn't take it, but I was in a posture of receiving. And I love that language because it kind of shapes your understanding of you and God, that you weren't taking something, but you were always receiving this gift. And then if you carry that out, it's not just the table uh, where you receive the, the elements of the sacrament, but it shapes your world. Like when you start to see that this is a posture that you enter the world in, it's like you're receiving everything. And this is what I was talking about earlier about you receive the whole world with open hands because it is all a gift. That's, that's helped me a lot. Um, 
the conversation I had with Jonathan Martin a couple months ago, uh, Jonathan Martin uh, planted a church in North Carolina called Renovatus. And uh, he's now in Oklahoma as well, not with you, Peter, because you're in New York, but our friend Mark Penner from Oklahoma, he's in the same state as you. <clears throat> and his stuff about the the importance of having a denominational tag on the name of your church was really fascinating to me. Uh, he started a church, I don't know, I don't remember if it had the denominational name on it, uh, on his marquee or whatever, but the church I started doesn't. And... The reason that I do that is because every time I tell someone, hey, I plan a church, and they go, oh, okay, well, what kind of church is it? And I say, well, it's, it's non-denominational. And, and just about every time, I think this is almost every time I've said it, people say, oh, that's cool. If I would have said, well, I'm, it's a church that's influenced directly by the Restoration Movement and the Churches of Christ, which is my tradition, the response I probably would have gotten is, oh, so are you the people who— and they fill in the blank. Are you the people who think you're the only ones going to heaven? Are you the ones who don't like music? Are you the ones who X, Y, and Z? If you go to different denominations, they're going to say different things about you because everyone being, brings baggage. And I think that's the point of what he's saying is when you have that denominational name on there, it forces you to own your sins. And I think there's something really um, – that that's really unnatural for for my personality, especially if you've done any of the work with the Enneagram. I've, I talked about this with Suzanne and and with uh, uh, with Richard a little bit the Enneagram. But if you don't know, um, go check it out. But you know my number, I'm a seven, and the tendency of a seven is to to run away from from pain. And so the question for me that I always have to ask is, what am I running away from? And so I think about my position as a leader of a church. What I need to force myself to do is go into the uncomfortable areas and deal and sit in the pain. And for me, it's as you know, leader of a church from my tradition is I need to own the pain that was caused by us saying that we're the only ones going to heaven and the pain that it was caused by some of the other choices that we've made. And uh, I found that to be... Um, not an easy thing to do, but it's something that um, uh, I, I think I have to do more of. So, uh, PETA, thanks for listening. Appreciate you uh, reaching out to me from Rochester, New York. Now, we've got another one from a friend of mine named Azariah. Uh, I've, I've emailed with this guy a bunch, but I've never said his name. I hope I said it correctly. He is a priest, I think, Church of England uh, from somewhere over in the UK. Uh, here's a question <clears throat> from Azariah. He says... Richard Rohr, Shane Hips seem to have an alternative Christology to the one I first learned. The idea of the spirit of the Christ, a Christ consciousness being expressed through the human Jesus, almost as if Jesus was a regular guy, not God's son. In the traditional understanding, this man was enlightened. Could you elaborate on the theory? Uh, is it a form of adoptionism, and does it simply all imply that all great religious leaders, the Buddha, Krishna, etc., were channeling the Christ consciousness in the same way as Jesus did? If this is the case, can Christianity claim an exclusive and distinctive position within the pantheon of faiths? Does this view change our view of Trinity, if Christ, of Paul, is a divine energy distinct from Jesus, the dude? The dude. Uh, also, can regular guys and gals channel the Christ? In short, does a lower Christology lead to a higher anthropology? Rob Bell seems to hold this view and is effective in the world, in its worldview, which gives him a sense of agency to transform the world as a Christ consciousness channeler. All right, Azariah, that's a tough one. But I do appreciate you referring to Jesus as the dude. 
because I'm sure that means you're a big Lebowski fan. Um, okay, so this is the question about the cosmic Christ, which is an idea that uh, that obviously Rohr introduced me to, and he does have uh, you reference this, but I think the language he uses is an alternate orthodoxy, which is a Franciscan thing. Uh, it's not uh, heretical, uh, according to Rohr, because it is too scriptural. It is something that was always understood as an alternate orthodoxy. And in this alternate orthodoxy, there is the understanding that Christ um, has been in all things. And he gets this from Colossians 1, uh, Ephesians 1. He gets this from John. And so you see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus as the, the micro, that this is Jesus of Nazareth. But what Rohr would point to is John's Gospel, John 1, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, as referring to the cosmic Christ, the one who holds all things together, the one who was before the world was created. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's not Jesus of Nazareth as much as it is the cosmic Christ, because the Word existed, pre-existed before all things, and through him and by him all things were created and are held together. This is a much bigger notion than just a man who became Christ or who was Christ that we call Jesus of Nazareth. And so it's understanding Jesus has a last name and it's of Nazareth, not Christ. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a title. And so, uh, yeah, this is a, a, a different idea and it, um, it's something that I'm still wrestling with the, the implications of it. And, uh, is the understanding that the Christ consciousness is just in Jesus of Nazareth? I think part of like being in the image of God is the idea that that God is in all of us, and that this Christ consciousness is something that that we experience. You know, Paul encourages the people in Philippi to have in you the mind of Christ, and I think part of what it means to be a Christian is to live in this awareness that that God is actively inside of you. That the Christ is not just some someone that inhabited the earth two thousand years ago, but it is all around you and also is inside of you. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Uh, so. Does this point to, you know, Christ is in every other religious leader? I don't know. I mean, you probably should ask Roar that question. It's it's above my pay grade, but it definitely points to the idea that you can't limit the Christ to just Jesus of Nazareth somehow, that God was before all things. And I wonder if it would be fair to point at what Paul does when he's talking about the rock that the Israelites found in the desert that gave them water, when Paul says that rock was the Christ. And so that's not Jesus of Nazareth. That was a thousand or plus years before Jesus was born. But Paul saying that's the Christ. Is that a reference to uh, this notion that the one who holds things, all things together and through whom all things was created uh, is in a rock? So um, it definitely opens you up to a bigger picture of what the Christ is. And uh, I think it's uh, I think it's really helpful now. As my buddy uh, Josh Graves talks about in his discussion of Christians and Muslims, uh, he's a Jesus person. And so he wants everyone to also be a Jesus person. And just because I believe in this idea that Christ is in all things and 
through whom all things were created, doesn't mean I don't want people to be not be a Jesus person. I don't, I don't think that's uh, an either or. I think you can understand in, that the cosmic Christ is something that's so much bigger, but you can also point people to Jesus. And so I'm a Jesus person. I want everyone to be a Jesus person. I point them all to Jesus. And um, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Uh, okay, that's all the questions we have. Uh, we appreciate uh, all of you sending questions, and thank you for taking the time to do that. Now, um, if you found this fun, enjoyable, something that maybe we should try again, hit me up, send me a message on Facebook, uh, Newsworthy Norsworthy over there, or send me an email. Uh, don't forget, go to the iTunes, subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. It helps out the old podcast, get up higher on the old iTunes charts, since that's the way most people find out about podcasts is on iTunes. It helps spread the word, and it doesn't take you much time. So please do that. Let me know what you thought about the Mailbag Podcast. And again, I am forever grateful for you all listening, supporting the podcast. It is a blast for me, and couldn't do it without you. See you, friends. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.